Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You must have thought it was white boy day. <laughs> yeah? It ain't white boy day, is it? Oh man, it ain't white boy day. <laughs> Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Rowledge just launched a new academic journal called Porn Studies. When are you submitting your first article? <laughs> I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. And uh, before I answer, I have to apologize for my voice. I'm sick. It's a, it's a miracle that I can do this. And, uh, and it's, it'll be a miracle if you can actually listen to the whole episode with my voice sounding like this. Um, or you can just mock me. For those of you who don't know, usually these questions are unplanned. So I didn't know that that question was coming. Can you just answer the question? I mean, like, this is the longest buildup for... I'm like in Pulp Fiction who says, now that you tell me he's dead, you want to know how I feel? Um, now that you tell me there's a porn journal, you want to know when I'm going to submit? It's a real porn journal. Yeah. Yesterday? <laughs> as soon as possible? All I need is an idea because I have plenty of tissue. <laughs> <laughs> so they say that like... It's not the length of the submission that matters. It's uh... Uh, well, you know what? There's this is something that 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 kind of bugs me, which is there. There's such a proliferation of journals that um, it's it just devalues publications. I mean, right? I, I assume your point isn't that there shouldn't be a porn journal. It's <coughs> just that. There shouldn't no, there be should all be a, these non-porn journals right, right there. Right, yeah. right. There shouldn't be like also a, a journal of European pornography, which is surely to follow. I actually think there should be a journal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of journals. Good point. That's that's a really funny way to take this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. You know, I, I had some serious things to say about this. I just let's move. Let's move on. Let's um, move on. There's a lot to talk about. It's actually <clears throat> stressful how much there is to talk about. I know. And part of the reason is that you and I have both been traveling. That's where I picked up my my Antipodean yeah. flu. Yeah, you were in Japan. I was in Australia. We no, sorry, <laughs> I was in Japan. You were in Australia. That's, but we don't have time to talk about that. No, um, no, no. But, I should but, say I am going to be on the partially examined life podcast talking about P.F. Strawson's article "Freedom and Resentment," free will in general, and a lot of the the and, and a couple articles that stemmed from freedom and resentment. Should uh, I be jealous? Is this like I, is this like you telling me that you want an open relationship? I'm not gonna lie. I I, I could I, I understand it? that you're mad, and you, but I, you but I a, they're just you friends. just want some strange. You want some strange <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> you know, you're the only podcast partner <laughs> for me. Um, I just I don't know. It's just feeling I'm feeling trapped a little bit. It's been 45 episodes. <laughs> I can't help it that you were a podcast virgin before. You know, go ahead, spread your wings, asshole. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, there's just so much of podcast life that I feel like I, I'm, I'm totally going to go on This American Life. No, I'm excited to go on there. It's, it's one of my favorite topics. So, um, no, good, good. I'm glad. I look forward to, uh, to listening to the- it's a, It's another example of uh, other people being much more gracious. Uh, right, because you talk some mad shit and then you had to back down. Just like you I, always I, get I yourself in trouble. Okay. I didn't talk mad shit. We talked mad shit. You always put this. No, you always no. put this on me. A couple other things we should mention. First of all, I don't know. There's been our, our listenership has grown a lot within the last couple of months. Thanks, I think, to Paul Bloom, to Sam Harris, who's tweeted out a couple things, a couple nice things. And one of the things that has come with the the I think the growth in listeners is we've had. Uh, a really sort of heartwarming outpouring of, of support, both from PayPal donations and the use of the Amazon link. And one of the things that Tamler and I have been, have been wanting to do for a while, we just never got around to it, is is not just, you know, we, we ask for, for support from our listeners, but we also realize that we're particularly lucky guys. So um, we want to give some of that back. What we want to do is, is we wanted to find a, a worthy charity, and, and Tamler um, will tell you a bit about the one that we picked. 
we wanted to pick something that both of us could get behind and both of us feel very strongly about. And one of the things I think that we both feel strongly about is education and education for students um, in impoverished communities. And actually, a good friend of mine is the founder of the Knowledge is Power program, KIPP, which was... one of the main subjects of the of the movie Waiting for for Superman and Kip is a is a charter school that serves impoverished communities or that's that's what it specializes in and really helps to turn the lives of so many children around and has been doing this for for a long time the the founders started out at Teach for America in the early 90s and they um, decided they wanted to devote their lives to this, and it's been a phenomenally successful program. It's something that there's a huge waiting list for for students in so many cities around America, and it's just an absolutely great program. I'm very excited to to help support them, and so 10% of all donations that you give us, either through Amazon or through uh, PayPal direct support, we will give to the KIP program. Yeah, and uh, we'll put up a link to uh, the website is kip.kipp.org. We'll put up a link uh, on the website uh, where you can always find, by the way, for those of you who might not know because you hear it through a feed or whatever, we always have show notes and links on verybadwizards.com. So keep the emails coming. Thank you for the support. Uh, iTunes ratings and uh, Facebook page and everything. We're really enjoying it. Um, All right, one last thing before we get to the um, – have you heard about this movie, God's Not Dead? Yes. Somebody sent uh, sent a link to the to the trailer for that movie. And I honestly thought that it was a trailer that was made in pure parody. I like the first time I watched it, I thought that somebody had just was just mocking like Christians and just made a trailer to right, like it was a Colbert thing or like <laughs> yeah. it was a yeah, like Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah. Like yeah. But no, it's a real movie and it's out. Are you going to watch it? I don't know. I I, I kind of doubt it. It's the villain is it in it is a philosophy professor. He teaches <laughs> this course called Introduction to Philosophical Thought. And apparently what he does on the first day of class is he makes all of his students write down <laughs> God is dead and sign their name. <laughs> I'm Professor Radisson. This semester I propose that we refuse to waste our limited time together debating the existence of the big man in the sky. Fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. <laughs> what? Why, do, why do you hate God, Tamler? You... <laughs> <laughs> so, so then the hero of the story is a student that refuses to write God is dead and sign his name on, on the thing. Uh, on, it's on like a paper. John Hyde study. It's, like... and, uh, it's kind of unbelievable. It, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, the idea that a philosophy professor would do that. I, I mean, I, honestly, that's how all my philosophy classes have been. Uh, on the first day of class, <laughs> first day, it's not even like you have argument. You look at arguments against the existence of God. On the first day, you just have to assert, no matter what your religious background, no matter what your beliefs are, that God is dead. As far it's as I'm premise, concerned, that kid's right. You know, the, like I wouldn't sign that shit if I was in that class. I can't do what you want. I'm a Christian. Uh, well, I'm glad that the rest of the world will know exactly what goes on behind the closed doors of your liberal elite philosophy training. <laughs> Just so our our listeners who are believers, and I hope there are many of you. Yeah, out we there, have some actually. That's not what I do in my, in my <laughs> classes. Yeah, it's usually, just, the second or third day, <laughs> I make them sign their soul over to me. Today, we're going to talk about uh, robots and war. It's a it's a topic that I've been interested in lately. The use of robots, drones, auto- autonomous machines to fulfill the role that traditionally has been fulfilled by human combatants. Our intuitions about what's right and wrong are built largely on the action of human agents and intentional agents. And so this is the topic I wanted to bring to you, whether what are the ethics of machine warfare? And we, we read a couple of articles that, we've, that we'll post um, 
on on the website, verybadwizards.com slash episode slash 44. One of the articles is called The Paradox of Riskless Warfare, and the other one is The Case for Ethical Autonomy in Unmanned Systems. Now, we should make a few distinctions. Um, And one of them, I think a key one here is between something like a drone, which is an unmanned aircraft, but one one that is controlled by... by human beings just from from a long distance from a distance right yeah. actually before we make we, before we introduce that distinction i want to say that when we're talking about the ethics of using um, machine combatants or autonomous autonomous machines to for warfare we are not talking about the morality of warfare itself or the the justification for warfare itself right. I, I think we should it's say a given right right let's assume that warfare is occurring right whether it's justified or not and that within Within this conflict now, there are certain set of rules that you have to abide by ethically in order to make – I guess Although for even like, that, because one of the things that you might worry about is that you're a lot more willing to enter right. into wars when there's little risk. And that's, I think, sort of part of the argument. Yeah, yeah, of, you're right. It, uh, it, it could yeah. change the very justification for the war, the, the war itself, yeah. And let so, me say this, and it's actually relevant, that I have been reluctant to even have this as a topic of conversation for our podcast. Neither you or I have any experience in war. We don't absolutely. know what the – yeah, I mean we're, we're the classic examples of people who have ben- benefited from other people <laughs> risking right. their lives. Um, and so it's, it's even harder for me to come to a confident opinion about – about about this topic because I just feel like I don't I can't I don't have any conception of what it would be like to be a soldier in a war and what right. that would do to me as a person what that would do you know just the yeah I was going to make the analogy that it's like it's like if we had a podcast episode on what labor is like doing like a, like having a real job is like <laughs> no no I meant birth I meant oh, birth I, <laughs> but but also but also yes also actual <laughs> manual labor that's true that's true. So, so we have to. That's that's a good caveat. One of the the issues that's involved in in machine warfare is that you have one side that will develop these technologies. By the way, I should mention for some reason it's very salient to me that um, that the company that developed that that invented Roombas that I'm, very company very is actually. I suspect got, that my wife has slept <clears> with <throat> right. our Roomba. The uh, we that company is one that's been it got tons of grants to develop. Um, robotic warfare systems. So one of the issues that's brought up uh, in in one of the articles that we're going to link to is here's here's a normal good sort of when two sides face each other in military conflict, it's obvious that what that what you want is an advantage, right? The whole point of military strategy is to gain some sort of advantage over your enemy. This can be with better training, better equipment. All kinds of things. And nobody views it as morally wrong. In fact, it's probably your moral duty if you have combatants, um, if you have people fighting for your side. Put them in the best position to win. In the best position imaginable. The problem with machine warfare is that it introduces a level of asymmetry that we haven't really had before. It's not just bigger guns or bigger shields. Because in throughout the history of military conflict, it's been the case that at the end of the day, it's still human against human. And so what Paul Kahn, who's, what he points out is that uh, this threatens the use of pure machine warfare against human combatants, threatens to undermine one of the He's primary a- justifications or for killing somebody else during war, which is that you are under the threat of being killed yourself. Right. So he points this out as, as sort of asymmetric, the problem of asymmetric warfare. Right. Um, and that it's the reciprocal Im- imposition of risk, he says, that is what, what could possibly justify entering a war in the first place. And that once you remove the the risk on both sides, including your own sides, then it's no longer warfare. It's he no longer it's war, more, right? That it's policing. But right. Policing assumes that the that you are only uh, targeting people who are morally guilty. Whereas right. that's the whole point of war is that every right. we don't have reason to know who's morally innocent and who isn't, and both sides could be morally innocent. Right. Yeah. So let's flush that out a little bit. So like, it's actually the case that. 
in armies, and as he points out, most most modern wars have been fought by by the use of a draft. Um, so the the uh, assumption here is that soldiers aren't morally culpable. They're not guilty. They're not the bad guys. Even if you assume that one of the countries is morally right and one is morally wrong, you don't assume that of the combatants. Um, combatants are assumed to be fairly innocent parties. So right. even soldiers in Nazi Germany weren't tried. And it's an assumption that the people who are morally culpable for the actions of the nation are the political leaders, the military leaders, maybe. Um, and a soldier can be perhaps guilty of a war crime, but he or she is not guilty just by dint of fighting in the war. Right. So you have and we have the Geneva Conventions to try to make the distinction between people who are guilty uh, during war and people who are just fighting for their country, which is considered morally permissible, legally permissible according to international law. Exactly right. So so it's the threat when so if I'm sitting in the jungle there and I'm looking at an enemy combatant who's about to kill me, it is only the threat. Arguably, only the threat that they might kill me that justifies my pulling the trigger and killing them. Um, it's a necessary condition. There are other necessary, things right. that, yeah, like there's other things that you might that you might need to justify it. So now take take me out of the equation and put a robot, right, like a T two hundred Terminator soldier there, right? Yeah. That's capable of making its own decisions. Um, now, I, as the person who has put the robot there, no longer have that moral justification for killing the combatant in the jungle, right? I, I am, it's, it's completely removed my moral standing for engaging in aggression against that, that enemy combatant because they, in fact, are innocent and uh, I am not under the threat of dying. So he comes down very strongly, I, I think, right, against the use of machines in warfare. Right. You know, he's arguing against something that as against a trend that has been going on in on various different levels and various different dimensions for a long time. The the number of congressmen with children in the military or close family members in the military is at an all time low and it's a huge, huge huge decline. So right there is already a disconnect, uh, some kind of disconnect between the, the, the consequences of war and the decision makers about whether to enter war or not. Right. Then you have, um, you know, these drones, which, you know, when you're using drones anyway, removes the risk entirely. And, 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 and drones are, you know, they're, they're, there's definitely certain types of drones that aren't autonomous. In other words, right. they can't make, they are being controlled by people in another country, but they're not under, those people are not undergoing any risk at all. So again, you have a distancing from your goals, your military goals from the the risk or the consequences of of, of the behavior. And then finally, it's this thing where, this is also, I think, important, uh, a a distancing between just the suffering that you're causing and your normal human feelings that might inhibit you from inflicting that suffering. You know what this reminds me of? And I really wish I had thought of this for our top five movies about moral dilemmas. Zero Dark Thirty. Did you see it? The Catherine Bigelow movie? Very I, much like. I actually uh, never watched it. You never saw Zero no. Dark Thirty? Mm-mm. Well, anyway, there was this great scene where Jessica Chastain plays Maya, who is a CIA operative, and she visits a black site to get information f- from a prisoner that is being tortured. I mean, he is being tortured, and she needs information which she thinks will help her prevent a terrorist attack. And the people who are there, the people who are at this black site and who are actually administering the torture, they say, all right, look, um, you probably want to step out of the room. You probably don't want to watch this. We'll get the information you need. And she insists on staying. She says, no, I want to watch this. And I think that was kind of an important moment because the idea is if I am going to be benefiting from this information, if my country is going to be benefiting from this information at the expense of somebody suffering, 
and experiencing this kind of torture, then I need to see it. I need to know exactly what it is that I'm doing. I cannot hide from this. It reminds me, it's to a T, sort of a real-life version of what you were talking about. I mean, I don't know if this actually happened in real life, but it's a more realistic version of what you were talking about in Watchmen that... I don't want to let myself off the hook if I am taking the utilitarian option, what I think is the utilitarian option, at somebody's expense, and somebody has to suffer extreme forms of pain in order for me to get it. I want to at least see it, and I want to see what I'm doing, and I want to I make sure that, that my normal human feelings approve of it, all things considered. But when you have the consequences of your actions taking place, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 miles away, then uh, again, that is something that you aren't going to be able to experience. So again, you might be more likely, not because you're not suffering risk, but just because your normal feelings of empathy are, are not triggered. Right. So in, in some ways, so then this isn't a new problem. It's just an increasingly, you know, the whole history of war in the last century has been one of increasing distance. Um, That's right. Right. So I was going to say, although it's always then been the case that the the military leaders are t are morally culpable if if they never visit the battlefield. Yeah, but now yeah. they're they're just their connection to the battlefield now is getting more and more abstract. Right. And I think that is a legitimate worry. Right. So so all this is on the side of we shouldn't be using this this technology for but there are some strong arguments to the, for the other side as well. Yeah, and in fact I actually think that I am on the side of arguing that we should be developing these systems to the extent that that military action is justified that I think that the move to toward ethically autonomous um what does well, that mean? Just in general, well, so, so yeah, I should. Sorry. What is no, autonomous? What does it mean meaning that not, re not remote control. Are what? Okay. Not remote control. That is, there isn't a direct agent. They are programmed to act in the way that a soldier might act. But they, as a, as autonomous as deploying a soldier would be, right? You train them, um, but you're not in direct control of them. It's important that it's autonomous for to get around what we were just saying right now, which is that to the extent that you can just remote control something and make decisions like who you should kill and who you shouldn't, then I think that it really matters that um, you're not feeling the empathy or the, the emotions that you might be feeling if you're in the battlefield. You wouldn't have mercy for innocence. So what some have argued and what the military is working on and, and what this, uh, this article that I sent you by um, Ronald Arkin is arguing is that there are a ton of reasons why developing machines that are capable of fighting our wars autonomously is a good thing. For well, one, you said it allows us to get around. Get, some of it gets the around the problem of uh, that you just brought up that we are not. If I'm just pressing a button from uh, ten thousand miles away, then I am not. My actions are not being informed by the sorts of emotions that they maybe ought to be informed by, like that empathy. Now, so uh, so how does this? Get, how does this get around? Okay. That well, how does it get around it? If you can develop an autonomous robotic agent that gets in there and fights, what you have to do is you have to give it a set of rules, right? You have to, you have to develop some algorithms that will tell it what to do under what circumstances. And what this allows you to do is it allows you to implement a set of strict rules about what you ought and ought not do in a military situation, in any given situation that will be independent of the local biases of a human agent. So, and this is one of the things that Arkin points out. One of the problems in war is that you get soldiers who are fatigued. You get soldiers who are prejudiced. They have outgroup bias. They might be racist. They have uh, insensibility to non-combatants like women and children. They let a lot of emotions get in the way of their decision-making and they commit atrocities. Right. So what what you can do when you have the strict control of an ethically of an autonomous machine is you can you can program into it a set of ethical guidelines, a set of rules of action that would never allow it, say, to take action if there was a risk of 
of harming a certain number of innocent civilians. All of those problems that are so prevalent in wartime, the dehumanization of the enemy, the mistreatment of, of innocent civilians, um, all of these things can be taken care of at the level of programming, right? Right, although I guess the question then is what would be the motivation because when you do that, that will presumably, I mean, almost by definition, harm the effectiveness of it as a war robot, right? I mean, I thought the problem was that we're not, we're still not experiencing any risk. We're still not viewing the consequences of the actions. So what would be the motivation to develop this robot? So in saying that it would be less likely to kill innocent civilians, all I'm saying is that that suppose you have a set of guidelines that the military follows for what's acceptable risk to civilians, right? right? All I'm saying is that soldiers are bad at following those guidelines in the heat of the moment. So they often stray from those guidelines. So long as you can have a set of fairly formal guidelines, you can ensure that the machines wouldn't violate those, right? They would be more reliable than human agents. So you could say at time one, let's get a bunch of soldiers who have been in war. Or you could say, like, let's get humanitarians or let's get the Geneva Convention and let's say, what is the ethical way to deal with risk to civilians? And you could program that into the machines in such a way that they wouldn't be prone to things like fatigue and prejudice and just human error. That I mean, you could presumably do that with drones too, right? I mean, no, because in drones, the human beings are still making the decisions about when to attack and when not to. And they're not doing it under the conditions that make human beings act. They still are under some conditions, right? They're still under the conditions of having to make the decision at the moment using, uh, you know, they still might be fatigued. They still might devalue the life of the enemy. They still might be. In fact, the very thing that you're saying is that from a distance, they're valuing the life of the enemy less. And so what you can do with an algorithm is you can simply program it to actually care about the life of the enemy independent of distance. The, the issue with drones isn't that soldiers are, are acting outside their orders or that they're violating military guidelines. That's not the issue with drones. The, the people operating the drones are, are, not, uh, are, 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 are not following the guidelines. The issue with drones is that the, the guidelines themselves are, are much less strict because you've removed this element of risk. But that would still be the case with these autonomous robots. Let's take drones. Let's set aside remote control drones for now. I'm right. simply talking about the advantage of a machine over combatant who's at, at the site. Essentially, what Arkin is saying is that the atrocities that are usually committed during wartime could be, it, it, they're generally because of human prejudice, they're regrettable, and it's something that wouldn't happen if you programmed ahead of time robots to, to engage in military action. Often in war, as Arkin points out, is that during the threat, under the threat of being killed, if you magnify the threat, if you, you really think like, my life is at risk, you might engage in the kind of military action against civilians even that you would not engage in if you were under no risk. That is, if a robot is in a town that is like a perfect mixture of, of soldiers and civilians, well, say, say a soldier is there. The soldier might say, fuck it. If I'm going to get out of here alive, I have to spray the whole crowd. Right. And might be indiscriminate in their killing because they have self-preservation as a motivation. A robot, on the other hand, might calculate like in Iron Man. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Iron Man, but his little interface yeah, like points out uh, which yeah. ones are civilians and which ones aren't. And he targets specifically only the soldiers. Right. With his little guidance systems. That's that's one of the big promises. Um, yeah. I mean, in principle, anyway, you could program your robot not to care about. Right. Right. Again, I th- I think the question is whether robots would be programmed in that way. That's but. in principle, right? That's yeah. that's right. So a- another one of the the things that Arkin points out is that soldiers. So he says, although they reported receiving ethical training, twenty eight percent of soldiers and thirty one percent of Marines reported facing ethical situations in which they did not know how to respond. And so this is actually where you and you and I might disagree about this. But I think that this is good reason to think we have a shot at at implementing a set of rules such that there wouldn't there would be very little doubt right you could program 
a set of ethical guidelines. It could either be top down, like a set of rules that then get applied in particular situations, or it could be bottom up in that, like you just give it a bunch of cases that you've had in the past and you have decisions about whether or not they were considered ethically right or wrong. And you build up from the ground up what the robot ought to do in any given case, right? So it finds the closest case that has matched this in sort of the history of American warfare, It says, you know, when soldiers ended up attacking a village where there were this many innocents, it ended up, it ended up being seen as like extremely wrong. So therefore stop right now and retreat. Okay, so this is part of this report from the Surgeon General's office that Arkin gives as, as reasons for why ethically autonomous systems in warfare would be right. uh, A report about Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and some of these reasons I think are good. It's funny I have one of them highlighted, and it was that one, the one you just said. Right. Although they re- reported receiving ethical training, twenty eight percent of soldiers, thirty one percent of Marines reported facing ethical situations in which they did not know how to respond. To me, that seems like a shockingly low number right, of, right. of of soldiers. Like. Of course, in warfare, you're going to you're going to face situations in which you don't know how to respond ethically. That's just completely unavoidable, and it's, it's it seems to me to be the ultimate in hubris, in 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 human hubris to imagine that you could program a robot, never mind like a human being, but like a robot that will know ethically how to respond in every situation that could possibly come up in war or 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 more than 70% of them or or 75% of them. Well, now, no. I don't know what kind of question this is whether it's so I war think, is complicated. No, no, obviously it's complicated, but so there's two things that we have to tease apart. One is whether there is a right answer. If right. you don't believe there's a right answer, then of course you can't program it in. Even if you believe that there is a right, quote-unquote right answer in every situation, it might be a unbelievably close call with so many factors entering into it. But then what is the best system to evaluate all of those thousands of factors in a split second? It's a computer. I, mean, I don't know to what extent you can program a robot to fully appreciate the nuances of a situation as complex as a situation in war. And I don't mean that I, soldiers are perfect at this, and I recognize nope. that I think soldiers have committed atrocities. Soldiers have also committed very heroic and very and, and, and ethically novel, come up with ethically novel ways to face uh, really, really, really tough situations. And a well-trained soldier who spent his whole life or a significant part of his adult life training for and actually experiencing these kinds of situations is going to be, I think, better equipped than a robot that is programmed by somebody who just doesn't have experience in, I, in, but in I, war. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know what your reluctance is. Like, so long as you agree that there is a right or a better answer as to the ethical decision to be, to be made, there is no there is nothing preventing a formalization of it into an algorithm. That is, you can call it appreciating, you know, the ethical consequences, but all, all the program needs to know is that one, one situation is weighted more highly than the other. And you can feed it literally thousands upon thousands of cases. Millions. I understand that you can, but I, I I don't, I I think (laughs) the situations that come up in war, unlike say the situations that come up in chess or the situations that come up in. I was about to say, you sound exactly like like people who, who thought that a computer could never play chess. Like, no, no, no chess. It's uh, amenable to a systematic algorithmic approach. Chess. I actually sound like somebody who said that a computer would never be able to beat a human being in Go in the sort of the right. Japanese version of chess, which is more holistic and more and and apparently that even that, that just happened. No, yeah, even right. even that's no longer true. Yeah. But I would submit that warfare is even more complicated and more holistic and more impossible to predict the kinds of situations that a robot would face than 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 Go, a game where there's just a I agree that it's complex. But it's not intractable so long as that you believe that there is a right answer for a human to acquire. So 
That is, you could say you could say that under ideal conditions, human judges would determine what the right course of moral action would be, and all you need is that a computer could spit out that answer. You don't even need it to arrive at that answer in the same mechanism, like via the same mechanism. You can just say, like, you can feed it every single case in which there has been an ethical question in battle. And that computer would actually, I, I would put money on it, give you a far more reliable answer in terms of what the ethical choice to be made is. It would probably be more accurate if by accuracy you mean what a panel of, say, judges after the fact would view as ethically appropriate. Well, so there's two questions here. One is, I I, I question that premise. You know, if we assume, first of all, that there is a right answer to to these questions, then that means that a computer could give it just as easily as a human being if it is a novel situation. So let's say war and wartime situations are such that that the ethical dilemmas, the really tough ethical dilemmas and situations, the really tough moral decisions, tend to be novel in such a way that they're fairly disconnected from historical moral dilemmas, then I don't think it's true that a computer being programmed will be more likely to perform the the proper action, assuming the, the situation is sufficiently novel. And second of all, you have to question the experience and the training of the programmers who themselves are not likely to be the kinds of people who have been in war and who have experienced these kinds of situations. Yeah, but the programmers, all the programmers need to do is appropriately transcode, you know, the rules that have been derived by people who have been in those situations. Like the programmer doesn't doesn't need to be the one coming up with the ethical code. But what about my first claim? The novelty. So the first claim is an interesting one, and I think it would be, here's, there are two things that I think. One is, and it's hard to know what the right answer would be, but one is, even if there were novel situations on the battlefield that had never been encountered, encountered before, I would put money on that those would be among the rare cases um, in the history of warfare, or at least in, in the history of recorded warfare. But even if there were a novel case, then what is it about the human judge, especially given all of the biases, the fatigue, the in-group favoritism, all of those things that we talked about before, that makes you think that the human would be in a better position? That is, what is it, what's going on in the human's mind that is making it better equipped at dealing with the novel ethical situation? This is where I think I put a lot more faith in emotion and emotional responses. That, that what's going on in the human is emotions, and that's not something I think you can program in to to the computer. I think emotions are can be now. I, I, I realize that, that especially in warfare, emotions can be biased, but I think they they are also what enables human beings to handle novel situations in an appropriate way morally and that's something i i guess i i don't think you can well you can program into the computer i i get what you're saying right about about not being able to program emotions into a computer what emotions are doing in human decision making is they're adding value to one course of action or to one individual over another and you don't need to implement an actual emotional reaction to represent the outcome. And this is what I was alluding to when I was saying what you, if what you want is the proper course of action, you don't need a mechanism that arrives at the right answer via the same mechanisms. So it may be That's that true. it may be that a human uh, realizes out of empathy that he shouldn't kill the innocent child. Um, but all that is, is one line of code for the, for the robot saying like, I shouldn't kill a child. Right, but we're talking about a novel situation. Right. It would be hard to program into the computer. I, and my point is is that emotions are better at handling novel situations. Now, you're right that a computer can add value to a certain life or a certain course of action just as easily as a human can, but they have to know what value to add to it. And I guess my claim is that emotions can tell us what value to add to something in a situation that's, that's new. Then you have more faith in the reliability of the emotional responses under these novel conditions because... Right. I mean, and I don't know what it, what it would be that would make emotions so reliable about a novel situation 
because emotions were forged in sort of the it forged in the flames of evolutionary history. They're not they're not something they're 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 not a royal road to the the ethically correct view. In fact, you know, they they lead us astray so often. <laughs> uh, even if I grant you, I have too much of a Pollyanna attitude about how human beings with human emotions would respond to novel situations. I think I'm being a lot more cynical than you are about the motivations and the cap- capabilities of the people who are programming these robots in the yeah. first place. One of the one of the issues, one of the morally problematic elements of this kind of uh, warfare would still be in play, which is that there's ultimately no risk except a financial risk. There is every incentive for human beings who are programming these robots to try to a- accomplish the aims of of, the, of that war. Yeah, and okay. to do it at a fairly minimal, you know, and to minimize your expense. Yeah, this is a good. This is a, I think, a really important point, and and it's a good one. But I don't think that it's central to the issue of ethically autonomous robots. I think that what you're saying is, is why um, because what they have you're to be programmed by somebody, right? Absolutely, but armies have to also be directed by somebody. So I think you're right to question the ethics of military command, and you know, in some ways, the chain of command with human beings is an attempt at perfect obedience that could only be brought about with robots. So maybe what you're saying is that uh, every once in a while, a soldier can disobey a direct order that he views as unethical, but they're discouraged from doing that. That's what training does. So we have equal reason to suspect <clears throat> military leaders who are, who are directing human armies as we do um, for those who are directing robot armies. Uh, so I, I think that the fear is a little, is elevated in the case of robot armies because uh, because obedience would be perfect. You wouldn't have an intermediary that could say, and in the ch- somewhere in the chain of command could say, this is bullshit, we can't be doing this. And so, because there's no human risk, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's the other risk. And because there's I no mean, human risk, they might, be, they might be extra willing to kill others? Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, um, that's the paradox of, the, of riskless warfare. That's part of the argument um, in that first article that we were talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although the part of the, the riskless warfare argument that I find compelling is that there's no moral justification to begin with to kill the innocent. But, but that's part of why there's no moral justification. Oh, I thought it was because you were under the threat that the threat of self, that self-defense is the rule that's providing justification. But, but I agree about that. So here's what I would say. I don't think that it's intrinsic at least the problem as I framed it, not the asymmetry problem as you've just stated, but the problem that, that is that there would be a perfect chain of command from the evil intentions of the military leader all the way down to the actions of the robot is disconcerting. And so I would want, you could actually make the code available. It could be completely available what the rules are. So you could say... Public, at an international yeah, level. Yeah, at an international level, um, any country that agrees to use um, autonomous machines, all it would take is to capture one of them and look at their software and see whether or not they were following the rules. Yeah, I, that, that, that just seems to me like something that will never happen um, because then other countries could take advantage of that code to make themselves invulnerable to, you know, just, they just act in such a way so that these robots will never kill you because you'll trigger some sort of ethical reluctance on their part by behaving in a certain way. I just don't see that ever happening. And this is the point, right? Ultimately, you're dealing with human beings with human incentives. But the nice thing is that you're dealing... With the same biases that you're worried about on the battlefield. But there are fewer, right? So you're eliminating one big source of bias. The bias that's involved in decisions made at at the level of the battlefield, um, the, the... Hatred and extreme pressure. What about the act of killing? The book that you recommended to me, the whole point of which was that human beings actually show a remarkable reluctance to kill other human beings on the battlefield in the heat of conflict. That, I mean, this is, that's so in line with what i'm worried about with these uh i agree we're not in disagreement here so let's take a quick break because when we come back i'm going to propose something to you it's a thought it's got a thought experiment that i think might get around
Who do you think you are? we're back and uh i wanted to to propose a, a thought experiment to tamler um about a, a potential solution for future warfare that might avoid some of these problems <clears throat> but first really quickly i wanted to give a quick shout out to a good friend of mine paul bello who works at the office of naval research and who gave me a bunch of uh, good resources about robot warfare and and just to say that he is actually doing Tamler, what you think might be undoable, which is attempting to develop basically ethical algorithms for for robots that are fighting autonomous wars. He's a very careful. He's a he's a cognitive scientist, programmer, nerd, and he's he you know he takes this stuff very seriously. I'll link to one of his papers where he he proposes at least something about how we ought to go about doing this. And I think that the truth is it's going to be done. The question is whether it will be done well, whether people will be okay with it. You know, I think that one of the biggest problems is that um, even if you had statistics that, that demonstrated in a, in a very sort of consequentialist fashion that war atrocities were reduced and that lives were saved and that conflicts ended more quickly – it's still not clear to me that people would be satisfied with that because there is something about the honor of war um, that seems to require two actually people fighting actual, it. actually yeah. fighting it, right? And so we, yeah. which I haven't even appealed which, to, but right. I feel that a little bit as well. I just, as someone who has never even had a scent of actually being in war, I feel like it's inappropriate for me to. Appeal. Right, right. But I definitely feel that that it's that there's also something dishonorable yeah. about fighting in this way. <clears throat> However, like it's easy for me to say when it's not me or members of my family that it's putting themselves at risk. Right, and and so it's it's sort of like whose perspective do you take? Because on the one hand, if you say, "Well, I want to save our American soldiers from being you know brutally killed in in the battlefield," and so I'm I'm all for this. Yeah. But that's PTSD not the yeah, yeah. That's not yeah. the the right perspective is to try to take a universal perspective, which is it, there is something about the sense of fairness, right? So it's not it doesn't seem fair if a if a lightweight fights a heavyweight champion, right? right. They'll get the shit kicked out of them, and now it seems extra unfair if um, the lightweight fights a heavyweight who actually turns out to be invulnerable to to even the damage that that the lightweight could inflict right. um exactly. he's actually invulnerable um has no feelings so so there is at that level a sense of fairness but what i wanted to open this segment with was that it's not necessarily the case that developing robots to fight wars has to be asymmetric i'll give you a, a thought experiment that i actually thought of a while ago and that i would present to people um and I find people are very, very resistant to it. But then it turns out that that my thought experiment wasn't nearly as original as I thought it, because there is a Star Trek, the original series, the one with <laughs> Kirk and Spock. It turns out that there is always a, get back. There's always Star Trek. there's an episode that is exactly almost to the T, like how I tend to describe it. But I had never seen that episode before a couple of years ago. All right, so the, <clears throat> the scenario is this. Um, now you're going to have to suspend your disbelief about about the programmers and the technology, right? So this is, this, is, uh, this is not an attempt at getting into your intuitions about whether or not programming is, is possible. But w once you grant that, that sophisticated programming of this sort could be done, whether or not it's ethical. So countries decide, let's say, let's say there is a world with, with two countries, um, two primary military powers. They've been engaged in traditional military conflict for centuries, millennia. And they develop technology that's sophisticated enough that they realize we can sidestep, right? One of the reasons that war is bad, along with like the, the actual loss of human life, is that it's, it's messy, it is, causes property damage, it's expensive. Um, all of, there's all kinds of messiness in, right? There's cultural damage that you can't repair for years and years. You know, we put 
our own Japanese citizens in internment camps and we had to undo that. It's just messy all around. So, but now assume that there still is substantial conflict that seems to only be um, resolvable through some sort of military-like conflict. Now, these two superpowers realized that they could develop very, very sophisticated computer simulations that would take into account all of the um, factors that are involved in warfare and that um, would represent in software uh, the various advantages and disadvantages that they would see in real war. So you would have... Uh, you would program in the terrain, you would program in the population of, of the country, you would program in the weapons, the number of weapons they had, the amount of money they had, all of these things you would program in. <clears throat> you could even imagine that you had a third party that that uh, ensured the accuracy that both sides agreed to, so they were self-binding, agreeing to accurate simulations. And now you put those two simulations to war. Right. You could even have you have it look like it's war. You could have it have it a visual representation or you could just have it output the results of any given battle. And now here's the trick. One of the reasons that we engage in war is that it is a really, really serious endeavor. That is a huge commitment to put the lives of your young men on the line. And because of that, I think people knowing that those are the consequences, they don't get in. They don't enter into conflict trivially. Well, Sometimes they do, but presumably less than they would if, right. if there were fewer, less, fewer consequences. And um, I think that when they lose, they lose and they surrender because they can't fight anymore because they've been weakened, right? They can't keep throwing soldiers at it. So the loss of life plays a very, very important role. So in order to keep that sort of motivational aspect going, these two countries say, if we engage in war, we do this simulation, as I've just described it. And at the end of that simulation, it tells us how many lives we would have lost, right? Soldiers. And so you bring in young men of the draft age into a room and you essentially, in a very antiseptic way, you put them to death. Now, you could even imagine that you don't, you can even imagine that you don't put them all to death. You say, like, let's just say 10% of the simulated casualties. We will give uh, we will give ten percent of our male population, and they'll be put to death. Now, you have no property damage. You have fewer lives lost. You don't have the trauma of war. You don't have soldiers that have to come back um, with PTSD. You don't have atrocities that occurred because of uh, hate and civilians that have died. All of these things are eliminated. Given, of course, that I've asked you to suspend your disbelief at about two or three different levels. But yeah. <clears throat> but if you grant that, do you think that this would be a good solution? Wow, that took a little twist. Right, it's like a video. Now you're actually like gassing or euthanizing um, 10%. And mainly because I think that that commitment is is one that really is required for conflicts of an international sort to be be sorted out, right? You you know, you can't be, you can't have an Xbox tournament for the, the West Bank. People have to have armies that have been decimated or more. To be real states. Right. Um, assuming I say yes, mm-hmm. like what do you take to be the implications of it? Cause I'm yeah. off the top of my head. I don't see how that supports necessarily adding robots and having robots, uh, engage in war. Right. <clears throat> and I ended the last segment by saying, I think it gets around a problem and I think it gets around the problem of asymmetry. So, um, so now instead of robots, uh, and drones attacking, um, sort of countries that are at substantial disadvantage in this asymmetric way, you have two armies of robots, right? So you send them out to a field and those robots fight each other. And it could very well be that the loss of, of all of that technology is sufficient to make an army surrender. But, um, but it may not be, right? So, but now that you have a field of robots fighting it, this, there's no reason why software should be implemented in extraordinarily expensive uh, pieces of technology that are on the ground. You could have software implemented in server farms that are simulating a battle with the very same outcome. And 
But how does this get – what I don't get is how this addresses the problem of asymmetry because you're still going to have the – given that you're using a perfect simulation and taking into account numbers and superior forces and technology, you're still going to have one country that's – when they engage in war are going to lose more lives than another country and that will still give the incentive to the stronger country and the more powerful country to try to conquer more territory and serve their own self-interests. Right. Um, the reason that I think it might at least get around asymmetry, which is that I think that you could program it into a simulation, a set of uh, what would be fair. You could say, um, well, look, I know that we live in mountainous terrains and you live in flatlands. And let's not program that into the simulation because what we want to know is, is in a fair fight, who would win? And so you can say, what's going to give us the advantage? We could even, you could even assign equivalent numbers of soldiers. And the only position of advantage that you would have, say, is whether or not, like your, your actual military tactics like if you're better at, at Dave uh, no no country is going to do that I, <laughs> country is going to give up its natural advantage right uh, I, that's just I don't even know that any country would do it even if it retained the natural advantage right but, right but I mean like so what's so I don't get what the what this is all right, trying well, to show so, so program in all of so, so say that you program in exactly exactly there is no new robot warfare. There's no asymmetry in that sense. You have simply programmed the actual war that would be fought with current technology and you've simulated it. So you yeah. don't have any new asymmetry. You just have a representation in software of the old, of the old way of doing it. Right. I guess I would say that would be preferable. And I would also say that, but that that's not the problem with developing autonomous robots in warfare because it's it's the, the the proposition isn't that you'll also give your technology to the other country so that they can use it. Um, the 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 promise of this warfare is that you will give we'll be, your country right. an advantage over the other and country be more that doesn't have this technology. Yeah, yeah, and the reason more, the reason I yeah. got to this extreme example is because I could see as technology progresses. And hopefully, as developing countries, you know, are are able to to um, develop technologies to reduce the asymmetries, that you would eventually have warfare that is largely machine against machine. And it seems as if maybe a natural outcome in the end would be that you might have pure machine machine conflicts. That 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 is one possible outcome. But more likely, it would be that you know you put all sorts of international pre- pressure to stop North Korea and Iran from getting the robot. See, I think that it's a little different than the bomb is indiscriminate and ethically problematic. The autonomous robot isn't so much. I mean, sure, we would want to put pressure but that they, they didn't but, but get. But your, your worry is that they won't program it ethically. Yeah, and so but, you're going to want to prevent them from having the technology in the first place. There's no way to only give them the technology for ethical robots. But it's okay because Assuming if they even, send out robots to the battlefield and they're met with robots, I don't give a fuck if they're indiscriminate and they're killing. And so if we start if we start showing up to war with with robots and they start showing up to war with robots, then this is a pretty cool outcome to warfare where we're taking our toll in some sort of way that's far reduces human suffering and loss of life. I mean, that's a cool outcome. It's also a cool outcome if we all just hold hands and give each other hugs uh, on the battlefield instead of fighting. Uh, it's also like, it would also it's just be not going to happen. It's it just not going to happen. There will always be countries with more with 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 greater technology with more advantage, and will want to press that advantage. And military leaders that want to press that advantage, I- and people trying to prevent other <laughs> countries from acquiring the technology that will give them an advantage uh, or that will allow them to level the playing field. Yeah, no, of- but you don't see that this is this represents a fundamental step not a not a progression in bigger weapons and shields it represents a step such that the first time our enemies meet our robots with robots of their own you have now gotten to a point where you have a real good shot at reducing the amount of lives lost just by the process of the arms race process 
But I guess the the moral issue that the that we're discussing here is should one country develop and employ autonomous or non-autonomous unmanned systems when the other country doesn't have those systems. Right. <clears throat> and that's the sort of that's the moral issue. I mean, I think if everybody, you know, if there was a, you know, some sort of godlike figure or some sort of international uh, body that could just give everybody the same technology, that would be great. That would and be so everybody that, the same, but but so that's not how it works. I so granted, all I was saying was if you could target symmetry, if you could actually enforce symmetry. Um, which may be, as you say, completely implausible, but it's not as if s- symmetry doesn't occur somehow, right? Like some, there are forces for symmetry, but like just let's just assume that we could have symmetric robot warfare. Would that be morally appropriate? Like, yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the morally problematic elements of uh, robotic warfare involve the asymmetry. So, yes. And I really like this ethically autonomous idea because I do think that there is a way in which countries could be held accountable for what they program into their, into their autonomous robots. Now, I don't know how to get around the unfairness of, of asymmetric risk, but perhaps there's a way in which you could have both, where, where you could have... Um, uh, for every for every robot that was ethically autonomous out on the battlefield making a decision, um, there is also a human, and so that so that it the moral justification is there. So essentially, they're like you know your little twinsy robot. The advantages to the precision and and the accountability really of of a machine that's making the decisions, like we could enforce that in a way that we don't. It would be harder to suppress what what the robot did all you would need is some some little piece of their of their whatever hard drive right i just feel like we're straying now from the from <laughs> too much from reality which is sort of common they that the philosopher tries to stay closer to real life. Yeah, yeah, no, that is sort of a common theme in our podcast. I but 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 when you stray into the realm of the imaginative, it highlights, I think, the central features of what is it really about the notion of autonomous warfare, or is it about the messiness of implementing it in this real world? So I'm fine with saying, like, yeah, of course, there are all kinds of practical problems to it. But, um, but, but nonetheless, there is, there is a real question that you could ask yourself, which is, uh, would this, at this extreme, would it continue to be unethical if both, if, if this were reliable technology available to all countries, would it be, uh, would it be unethical to, to not have human beings making these decisions? Yeah, maybe this is like another meta disagreement. To me, that isn't the the urgent question. The urgent question is: Should we, you know, what are is it ethically problematic to <coughs> develop these robots that are possible to develop in the situation in in the world as we live in today? But I think that you're being a little unfair. I mean, one of the ethical decisions, one of the features of the ethical decision to use the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was I think one of the failures in in the ethical decision-making process was not thinking what this would do if everybody had it. I figured it out. Like, I've, I'm in a nightmare right now. I woke, I went to sleep, and I'm having a nightmare where I woke up and my podcast partner, who's also a very good friend, has suddenly become a f- full-fledged Kantian. And the, the urgent question is, if this became a universal law, um, no, that's, that's this, the question that we have to ask. No, but no, it, it's that, not. It has nothing. That, that question is irrelevant because if other countries were going to get that technology, they were going to get it. That's not a question that was relevant to whether we should use uh, the atomic bomb at that moment. If, if, it, if, it, if it had some effect as to whether other what, countries what are you, would uh, get the what bomb. Are you a historian now? Like you don't think – you don't think that our willingness to use the atomic bomb in World War II had, would, would play any role in, in a country's future willingness to use it? Well, if that's your point, then that's fine. I'm not pointing to the categorical imperative when I say – I'm not saying is it universalizable to, to develop robot warfare. I'm saying that it's not unreasonable 
to think of what this technology would be like when it is finally in the hands of everybody. If our use of the bomb was going to lead other countries to be more willing to use the bomb when they acquire the technology, that's a very serious consideration. Yeah, I think I see where I disagree with you because I think that the way that we choose to use our autonomous machines now will set the stage for how future countries use it against us. But okay, but now I see what you're saying. And if you're right, and that's a key question, if you're right, that would provide some incentive for countries with this technology to develop robots that actually do have these moral constraints. So if we actually go out of our way to say, we're developing these machines in order to prevent some of the atrocities of war that we've committed in the past, We want to develop a really strict set of controls about when and where they're allowed to be used, and we want you to know what the rules we're using, that I think that that would actually be a good thing for us. I understand your skepticism. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm a little skeptical, but that's an empirical question in the end, whether countries that really did want to use that technology for ill would end up using it for ill regardless right if we're first if we're first to the game i want to be the ones to develop the right the right rules well at least i can stop hyperventilating about you having been hypnotized or brainwashed by the kantians even though that's always been a possibility that you know it doesn't seem like it's quite happened yet i know because at the end of the day i'm at the end of the day i'm being more realistic like i'm actually just being more more uh, future oriented in my realism yeah i don't know about more realistic with crazy thought experiments about things that would never happen, but... Listen, this is because I watched Star Trek. So the interesting thing about the Star Trek episode was um, this original series episode where there were two planets that had been engaged in conflict for thousands of years, and they developed this simulated war. And uh, the crew of the Enterprise got caught up in the simulation, and uh, when they realized what was going on, when they were beamed down to the planet and they, they finally figured out that what was happening is that they were engaging in simulated warfare and calculating the number of casualties and then sort of in this very antiseptic way, killing the people who would have been involved in the casualty. And so unlike me who had developed this thought experiment, you know, what I thought was independently and thought that this was a great idea, the crew of the Enterprise is, they're morally abhorred by this method of fighting war. And so, and it's a given that it's morally abhorrent, at least from the perspective of the writers. Just because it's dishonorable? Is that the idea? Mm, because I think the antiseptic way of doing well, you didn't die. Like, you can't just kill these people. They didn't actually die. And and the, the leaders of the planet are like, no, this is how we do it now. You have to understand, like, if we don't do it this way, we're going to go back to the old messy ways in which property is damaged and, and tons of lives are lost. And it doesn't matter because I think the writers of Star Trek were Kantian in this way. Yeah, I mean, you know what this reminds me of is Nozick's experience machine. If people are are really going to die, which they would be doing in in your case as well in a war, if if people are really going to die in a war, then they should actually die in a war. It shouldn't be that the war is simulated and then your own country is putting you down because your own country is fighting each other with ps4s all right are we are we done with this yeah we're done Uh, i think we should wrap up we've been going at this for a pretty long time join us join us next time for another hopefully shorter episode of very bad wizards